God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by men shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'll make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. O oh, gracious and kind Father, we praise you, we thank you for the reading of your word, and now as we seek to hear it preached, we ask for your help by the power of your spirit, that both spirit and word may minister to each of us in this place, that you might be glorified, and that our lives might be conformed more into the image of your Son. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, last week, we started to look at the story of Noah and the great flood. And that story stretches four chapters in Genesis, and we only considered the first two, chapters six and seven. And there, we were introduced to a fallen world growing exponentially worse. And we're told there that God regretted making man, and he was grieved in his heart. And so... He had a plan to start over, to hit the reset button. Now, we're also introduced to a man named Noah who found favor in God's eyes. Now, we said before that Noah wasn't a perfect man and he didn't do anything to merit that favor, but he did believe God. He did take God at his word when he, God warned about the coming flood and God told him to build the ark. And that faith was counted to Noah as righteousness. Because of faith, he's described as a righteous man. 
And because of grace, the Lord rescued from the flood Noah, his family, and a pair of all the animals of the earth, and a pair of all the birds of the heavens. That's what we saw last week in chapters 6 and 7. Now, when we get to chapter 8, the floodwaters have subsided. And in verse 13, we read that on New Year's Day, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off the earth. And so there's this sense of newness in this chapter. We're turning over a new year, and at the same time, we're turning over a new creation. Now, what you're going to notice in our text are all the parallels to Genesis chapter 1 when we had studied that weeks ago. We're told that the animals were brought out of the ark and they were set loose to swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And then later on in chapter 9, verse 1, Noah and his sons are commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's very familiar language. We saw that back in Genesis chapter 1. So what we see here in chapters 8 and 9 is really a new beginning. It's a restart. But we haven't returned to paradise. Well, we're not back in the garden. God is starting over, but things are not as they were before. He tells humanity to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, knowing full well that they're going to fill it up with sinners and all of their sin. The effects of the fall are so entrenched that even a deep cleanse like the flood is insufficient. Scrubbing the surface of the earth, washing it clean of sinners, is just not enough. You know, when I was a teenager, I had a real bad case of acne. And I, I tried all the facial cleansers on the market, you know, deep, deep pore cleansers, you know, facial masks. I mean, you know, a teenage boy putting on a facial mask, I mean, that, you get, you're getting desperate there. I was using Proactive way before the celebrities were, were, were pushing it. I'd wash my face like four or five times a day, still wasn't enough. Ended up going to see a doctor, and she prescribed me some antibiotics. I had no idea that the problem wasn't just oil and dirt on the face. It was compounded by bacteria in the body. So, you know, I could wash my face all day long, but without going deeper, for me, it just, it just wouldn't be enough. Now, in the same way, a deep cleanse of the earth by means of a flood was certainly effective, but as we see, it's not going to be enough because human nature itself went unchanged. Sin might have been washed away, but that which produced sin in the first place remained the same. So just as he thoroughly cleansed the earth, God had a plan. He had a plan to thoroughly cleanse the human heart. But next time, well, next time he wasn't going to use water. Now, we'll get there soon. But before we consider God's better solution at the end of this message, let's start off by walking through our text. Let, let, let's go through our text carefully. And as we do so, I, I want to show you three things. I want to show you three gracious provisions from the Lord in our passage. And so if you want to follow along, look in your uh, bulletin. You'll see an outline there. Here are three gracious provisions. First, a promise to preserve his creation. 
Second, a prohibition to protect his image bearers. And third, we'll see a sign that points to that better solution. So let's begin with a promise by the Lord to preserve his creation. We see this in chapter 8, verse 20 to 22. And what's important to note is how this promise is made in response to something that Noah did immediately after stepping foot off that ark. After the flood waters subside, the ark comes to rest on a mountaintop, and Noah opens up the ark doors. He releases all the animals, and then he and his whole family leave the ark, and they settle on a newly cleansed earth. And immediately, we see Noah begin to gather wood and stones. And your first thought is, well, he must be building himself a house building a house for himself and his family. And that that makes perfect sense to us because that's probably what we would be doing. The first thing we would do if we were in his shoes. But in verse 20, it goes on to tell us that the first thing Noah built is not a house for his family, but an altar for the Lord. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, that's encouraging. That's a good start. The first priority was to worship the Lord. That, my friends, is more evidence of Noah's faith. That's exactly how faith would express itself, where, where your instinctive response to God's salvation is not to therefore go and pursue self-interested agendas, but to turn around and praise the Lord for his goodness and grace. That's what faith does. And in Noah's day, that grateful kind of praise was often expressed by means of a sacrifice, by means of giving up a whole burnt offering. That same term for a whole burnt offering shows up later in the book of Leviticus, where we learn so much more about the significance of these types of sacrifices. In Leviticus chapter 1, we're told that whole burnt offerings were intended to be completely incinerated. That means you don't eat a portion of that offering like you would with other types of offerings. No, in this case, you offer it up completely to the Lord as a way of signifying your total giving of yourself to God. And and we're told that these whole burnt offerings would make atonement for your sins. They were designed to have a propitiatory effect. That means they were designed to placate God's righteous anger to turn his just wrath away from the sinner as it now falls upon the sacrifice. That was the intent. Now, not only was Noah's offering a complete sacrifice, notice how it was a costly sacrifice. Because back in chapter 7, verses 2 to 3, we're told there that Noah was instructed to bring, as we all know, a pair of all the animals of the earth onto the ark. But in verses two to three, it says specifically that when it comes to the clean animals and all the clean birds, you are to bring seven pairs of those animals onto the ark. And so he had more than just one pair to work with, but still he only has seven pairs of each of these clean animals or clean birds, seven pairs on the entire planet. And now you're going to take some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and you're just going to burn them up into ashes? Isn't that, a, isn't that a bit wasteful? I mean, Noah, shouldn't you try to conserve some of them? I mean, you only have 14 of them. But Noah made a costly sacrifice 
in faith. And that pleased the Lord. We're told in verse 21 that the Lord smelled this pleasing aroma of the whole burnt offering. And that word, the Hebrew word for pleasing actually shares the same root word as Noah's name. It means rest. So back in chapter 5, verse 29, uh, we're told that Noah's father, Lamech, names him Noah or names him rest in hope that Noah is going to bring rest or to bring relief upon this sin-cursed world. And now we're told that that's happening. That the sacrifice he offered up on the altar has a pleasing aroma, or in other words, a rest-inducing aroma, because it brought to rest God's righteous indignation towards human sin. It put God's rest God's anger to rest. Now, I get it if some of you are thinking that, oh man, that's a, that's a pretty primitive way of describing God here. He, he's this angry God that needs to be placated. I mean, that that kind of sounds rather unbecoming of the Lord. But if you just compare God to, to any of the Mesopotamian gods in those other ancient flood stories that we talked about last week, the Lord actually comes across rather dignified. In the Epic of Gilgamesh that we mentioned before, after the survivors of the, of the flood um, leave their boat, they offer up a food sacrifice to the gods, and we're told there that the gods swarm around the offering like flies, for even the gods had to go without food for the seven days and seven nights, the, the length of the flood in that account. But in Genesis, the Lord God is not hungry. He has no creaturely needs. But he is grieved. He is grieved over our sin. But Noah's costly sacrifice relieves, gives rest to the Lord's grief. Now, look back with me at verse 21. And notice how it says the Lord says the following words in his heart. Meaning God said what we're going to read next to himself. Noah didn't hear it. That means Noah doesn't learn if his sacrifice is actually efficacious, if it's effective, if it actually puts God's anger to rest. He doesn't know that God was pleased with his sacrifice and has now committed himself to never destroy the earth again in like manner. I think that's intentional, that God says this just to himself. It's so that Noah doesn't walk away thinking that it was his sacrifice that turned God's hand as if it was some form of magic. And I think that's often how we treat prayer or we treat our praise. We, we, we think that if we just pray the right words or if we offer up the right praise, then it's like saying the right incantation or, or casting the right spell. It makes God do what we want. The Lord, though, we know that he does hear our prayers and he does respond to our praise. But out of the freedom of his will and the goodness of his grace, he responds. God's not a genie in a bottle. He does not serve at our pleasure. And so the Lord is definitely responding to Noah's praise, to Noah's sacrifice. But he wants to make sure Noah doesn't doesn't misconstrue that and think that he did that. No, it's out of the Lord's goodness. It's out of the Lord's grace. Now, 
as we go on to, to read, though, of course, he does say God is pleased. He is pleased. He's, his wrath is put to rest. His attitude towards humanity, towards a fallen world, has changed because he is propitiated. His wrath is satisfied. His justice is served. Just, just not on Noah and his family, wrath and justice is served on all of those pairs of clean animals and clean birds sacrificed in their place. God's stance has changed. But sadly, sadly man's nature has not. And so in verse 21, we read a sad assessment of man's inherent sin nature. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And we we see how similar that that is to how humanity was described even before the flood in chapter 6, verse 5, where there it said, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it's clear that the cleansing flood was not enough. It was incapable, as we've been saying, of cleansing out the human heart. But even so, even so, God promises to preserve his creation and never again to curse the ground because of man, even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God will keep his promise even though man remains inherently sinful. And the Lord goes on in verse 22 to promise that there will be a return to regularity and predictability in nature. While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So while the human heart remains irregular and unpredictable, creation will be different. The, regula the, the regula um, regularity and predictability of nature will really be a testimony of divine faithfulness. Friends, I, I, I hope you never look at a sunset or a sunrise differently, uh, the same way again. I, I hope from this point on, after seeing this, that you will look at those things differently. Because as the sun rose this morning, it shouted out the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. He who has ears to hear, let him hear that. So the first gracious provision in our text is a promise to preserve his creation. That leads to our second point. The second gracious provision is a prohibition to protect, protect his image bearers. To protect, in particular, the offspring of the woman, through whom, we're told, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, comes the promised one, the serpent crusher, humanity's hero, who will inflict a crushing blow to Satan and will one day reverse all the effects of sin's curse upon this world. After the flood, Wickedness and violence are still ever-present. So in order to preserve the line of the woman, until the Messiah himself comes, a prohibition was put into place. Look with me, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. We said earlier that this whole section reads like a recapitulation of Genesis 1, a repeat of Genesis 1. And so Noah here is being treated in many ways like a second Adam. He's given similar instructions to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, in contrast to those other ancient Near Eastern flood accounts, the biblical version is very pro-human. 
Yes, we're depicted as inherently sinful, but we are still treated as precious in God's eyes, for we were made in his image. And so the Lord wants us to populate the earth with his image bearers. He wants us to have more children and to populate his world. But in those other flood accounts, remember how we said that the problem that incited the flood in the first place was overpopulation. So after the flood, the gods resolved to limit the growth of humanity by inflicting us with sterility or with high infant mortality. But the biblical flood account is strikingly different. Human beings aren't considered the problem. Human sin is. We are not a plague upon this earth, but our sin has certainly plagued us and will continue to do so until the appointed time when the promised seed of the woman arrives. And until that time, until the Messiah comes, God needs to protect humanity from itself, from our own sin and folly. Because even though things have restarted, things are not the same as we saw back in Genesis chapter 1. Our, our dominion, for example, our dominion over the animal kingdom has certainly changed. Adam and Eve, back in Genesis 1, were to exercise loving rule over the animals, and the animals willingly submitted to their masters. Humans and animals lived in harmony in the garden. And, and we're told in Scripture that one day we will do so again on the new earth. But apparently, after the fall, and but before the flood, Animals, animals themselves, had corrupted their way on the earth. And without a fear of man, some of these animals were ferocious and they preyed on humanity. So after the flood, one significant change is that God put the fear of man within animals. Look at verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. So that's why, unless you're a Disney princess, birds don't flutter into your hands when you whistle to them. That, that's why squirrels scamper away whenever you try to get near them. Well, I guess unless you're on Rice Campus, right? Those, those squirrels are different. Um, that's why even the few animals that could do us harm would rather avoid us than actually confront us. Because God has instilled a fear of us in them as a means of, of protecting us, to curb any violence against us by animals. And then to reinforce this new state of affairs, God grants us permission to eat and kill animals for sustenance. So look at verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So in this post-flood world, meat is to be a part of the normal human diet. Apparently, in the pre-flood world, we were all supposed to be vegetarians. And even if someone did eat meat during that time, they did not do so with God's consent. They would have just been adding to their iniquity. But since the flood, humanity is meant to eat meat. Now, that, that's not to say that it's wrong to be a vegetarian. That's you know, personal choice. That's really a conscience issue. But it would be wrong to say that it is wrong to eat meat, since here in verse 3, God does give us explicit permission. 
But just because we can eat animals doesn't mean that we have the right to exploit them. The text goes on to say in verse 4 that there's a prohibition here. It gives, it gives us a prohibition. God says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In other words, humans are not to eat animals in the way that animals eat animals. We are to show respect for life and ultimately respect for the life giver. To cruelly mistreat animals or to wantonly kill them is to disrespect the gift of life and therefore to disrespect the God who gave them life. Now, notice with me how the animal's blood is equated with its life. In Scripture, blood is considered to be sacred because it represents life. To shed one's blood is to take one's life. And that's why within Israel's dietary laws, there was a prohibition against eating the lifeblood of animals. Now, of course, a lot of that had to do with ceremonial cleanliness, but it was also a way of guarding against the exploitation and the wasteful abuse of other living creatures who ultimately belong not to us, but to God. It's a way of respecting the life that God has given them. But if animal life is sacred and to be respected, well, then how much more human life? And that's the logic of our text. Look, look how it goes on. Verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, for his fellow, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So animal blood can be shed, just not consumed. But we must not even shed human blood. Human beings are so sacred in God's sight that not only will other people be held accountable for taking human life, even animals, even animals have to give an account if they take a human life. And so later on, uh, if you read in the law of Moses, there are a bunch of case laws, and there are case laws against oxen. So if an ox gores a human to death, that ox is responsible and is to be put to death. Well, if an ox has to die for killing a man, then what should happen if a man kills another man? The text says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And that reckoning for the life of man in verse 5 is expressed for us poetically in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Genesis 9 verse 6 would be considered the foundational verse giving divine authorization for capital punishment. For enacting a death penalty. Now, Friends, I totally realize that the death penalty is a contemporary issue fraught with controversy and ethical questions. And I know that Christians who seek to be pro-life are often criticized for the apparent inconsistency of supporting the death penalty. Because the death penalty is argued today as inhumane, as decidedly anti-life. But look at verse 6. And pay attention to how the argument is being made. 
Notice how the authorization for capital punishment is grounded in the Imago Dei, the image of God. By man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. In other words, to kill a human being is to destroy a divine image bearer. And if that's true, well, then you would expect the harshest of consequences. Killing a bug, killing a beloved family pet, killing a precious endangered species, and killing a person all involve taking a life. But a society that says only the intentional taking of a human life warrants the death penalty is a society that recognizes and respects the sacredness of human life as the only life on this earth that bears the very image of God. My point is that Scripture is arguing for the death penalty strictly on humane grounds. It's because human life is that sacred that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. In those other ancient law codes during the same time, you could find a provision in those other law codes for ransoming a murderer by means of some monetary payment. But in the law of Moses, that was strictly forbidden. You cannot ransom a murderer by payment. From the biblical perspective, no amount of money can ransom a murderer because you can't put a monetary value on a human life. From a biblical perspective, a human life is priceless. Only another life is of equal worth. A life for a life. Now, Genesis 9 verse 6 also lays out for us the groundwork for later biblical teaching that places capital punishment in the hands not of the individual, but of the state. And you see that reinforced even in the New Testament in places like Romans chapter 13 or 1 Peter chapter 2. So in biblical terms, the death penalty is not a, a, about exacting vengeance. It's not about satisfying some kind of personal vendetta. It's, it's not even just about punishing the criminal. It's about underlying the particularly heinous nature of homicide and highlighting the sanctity of human life. And that's why, friends, I would argue that the death penalty is consistently pro-human life. And that's why I think it would be difficult to take Genesis 9-6 seriously and at the same time to be categorically opposed to the death penalty in all cases, in every situation. Now, I realize that many people are not categorically against the death penalty in principle, but they would oppose it in practice. Especially when you consider how we, we live in a day and age where judicial abuse still exists, where in our country there is, sadly so, there is a racial disparity and a socioeconomic disparity when it comes down to who actually receives the death penalty. We would like to believe that we live in a society where justice is blind, where justice cannot be bought, but the reality is, is that if you have enough money and if you can afford the right lawyers, 
then it becomes extremely difficult for the state to get a death penalty case against you, much less to end up executing you. But the response to this opposition to the death penalty in practice is not to throw out the death penalty altogether and along with it throwing out the sanctity of human life. The right response is to get the practice right to work towards a more just application of the death penalty. That's the humane response, and that's the biblical response according to Genesis 9, 6. Remember again, friends, why God enacted this prohibition and penalty in the first place. It was a way to protect humanity from itself. Not only are there wild animals out there that could easily snuff us out, there are other humans out there with murderous intent who could do far worse. So God tells the world how much he values every single human life by warning us of the fatal consequences that will come if you disrespect and destroy that life. So we've seen the Lord graciously provide a promise to preserve his earth, and now we've seen him provide a prohibition to protect his image bearers. And we've seen how all of that is important for this world as the world waits for the coming Messiah, for the promised seed of the woman. Until his appointed arrival, God preserves and protects us. And that leads to our last point. The third provision of God is a sign that points towards this better solution that centers on the Messiah. We said how a, a great flood is pretty good at cleansing the surface of the earth, but it is woefully inadequate at cleansing out the wickedness of the human heart. And yet that is what God is committed to doing. But according to his sovereign will and in his good timing, the better solution to do that wasn't planning to happen immediately right when Noah steps off the ark. It's not going to occur until generations and millennia later. And so in the meanwhile, the Lord puts a sign up into the sky as a way to remind himself and to remind his people that his better solution is surely coming. Look with me starting chapter 9, verse 8. Notice how God establishes with Noah and his sons a covenant, promising, quote, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's verse 11. So that right there is the main thrust of this particular covenant, what theologians call the Noahic covenant. It's essentially a promise to, nev to never judge the earth again by flood. Now notice with me how the Noahic covenant is unconditional. There are no stipulations placed on man for him to keep his part of the covenant. No, this promise is unconditional. God will never again flood the earth as he did in the days of Noah. And notice as well how the covenant is unilateral, meaning that God unilaterally bound himself to this promise even without our consent. This is not a mutually agreed upon arrangement here. God is keeping his promise to preserve the world, whether we like it or not. He's going to do it. And third, notice how the covenant is universal. He enters into a covenant with all of humanity as well as every living creature. 
every bird of the heaven, every beast of the earth, he is entering in a co- into a covenant with them. Now, I know for God to be in a covenant with us, okay, yeah, we, we, we expect that, but to be in a covenant with animals, that sounds strange. But just think about the implications. If God is that committed to preserving every single species of animals, then how much more should we honor that commitment and we work against the extinction of species? Why do we tend to leave these issues of creation care to non-Christians? Why do Christians think that this has nothing to do with us? This is not our responsibility. Why are we entrusting this divine responsibility to those who don't even believe there is a God to whom all these animals belong? Friends, the dominion that was entrusted to us as image bearers of God calls for responsible stewardship of the earth and all of its creatures. That's part of the Christian's responsibility. Now, if we look to verse 12, it speaks of the sign that God will place in the sky as a reminder of this covenant that he's entering into with every single living creature on earth. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now that sign, of course, is referring to a rainbow, which we all know often appears after a storm coming out of the dark clouds. Now what's interesting is that the same Hebrew word for rainbow is used elsewhere in the Old Testament in reference to a warrior's bow, as in a bow and arrow. In fact, many of the gods of the ancient Near East are commonly depicted as holding a bow in their hand as it symbolized prowess and power. But here in Genesis 9, the bow is not being used as a sign of power, but one of peace. Here, the warrior's bow is not held in in the the hands and and strung and, and ready to fire. No, the bow is hung up. It's in a relaxed, horizontal position. It's not pointed down at the earth with an arrow notched, ready to fly. No, look how it's pointed away from the earth and up towards heaven. And the fact that God's bow often appears out of dark storm clouds is a constant reminder that we deserve those clouds. We deserve those storms. We deserve his judgment as much as humanity did back then in the days of Noah. But instead, every time you see that rainbow, you should be reminded that God has vowed to show restraint and mercy. And that restraint and that mercy, friends, is only possible because that warrior's bow pointed upwards one day did let loose an arrow that pierced the heart of heaven. It was the day that the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman, was nailed onto a cross where his lifeblood was shed. Shed, of course, for us. For all of us, like the rest of humanity, all of us are guilty of sin. We are the ones deserving of death. And remember, 
no amount of money can be, ran- can be paid to ransom those who deserve death. Remember, only a life for a life, which is why Jesus laid down his life for us. He received the death penalty for us. And that's how we can be forgiven. That's how the human heart can be truly cleansed, not by water, but by blood, by the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. We can be cleansed of all our sin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this good news. That though we deserve judgment, though we deserve the storm of your wrath, though we deserve the flood waters of, of judgment, yet, Lord, you are merciful and you are gracious. For you sent your son, Jesus, to be the one to have his blood shed in our place that the storm may pass over us as it falls upon him, that we may experience true cleansing, new life. And so, Lord, we pray that from this day forth, we may live in the newness of the life that you have secured for us through the death of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.